Hey, buddy, do you want to say a few words about this show before uh, people give it a listen? Yeah, I want to encourage everybody, if they want to uh, to learn more about the uh, Albums Are Dead podcast, to go to albumsaredead.com or visit us on Twitter, we could, uh, twitter.com slash albumsaredead, uh, on Facebook, again, slash albumsaredead, and uh, where else? We're on Instagram, uh, and if you look for Albums Are Dead on Instagram, how about that? We'll also be there. Um, nice. I post a little teaser every week about what albums are to come. We're also on iTunes, and uh, I think right now that's the only place we are. We're going to try to eventually get to like Google Play, Spotify, all that. But on most podcatchers, if you type in Albums Are Dead, uh, you're going to find us. Uh, tell me, uh, do we make money doing this show? We do not make any money doing this show, and uh, all the songs that we play on the show are for preview purposes only, so make sure to go and support the artists, even if they don't need support, it's still the right thing to do. Go uh, stream their music legally or buy the tracks, because uh, we want to keep above board, folks. All right, folks, uh, with all that being said, I think we should get to our episode. What do you think? Let's do it! 25 years in construction work, I always brought him a paycheck. For six, seven months, I'm out of work. And all of a sudden, what? You're hitting me. And talking back. All right, all right. Talking about getting a job and hitting all right, me. All right, no hitting, no slapping at the dinner table. Okay, that's the rule. Hmm? One pork chop! One! Hey, Frank! It's disgusting, right? Sick. We just washed the hair. Yeah. You know, I work on my hair a long time, and you, and you hit it. He hits my hair. Mm -hmm. Albums are dead. What's up, folks? You know, listen. I, I want to cut in quickly. Uh, last week on the sh on the show, you uh, you said that we were going to be uh, reviewing this album, and I got really really excited. And I, I wanted to thank you because this is one of the albums growing up that like was one of my favorite albums of all time. I'm so excited to break this down track by track. Some of my favorite tracks, like Trash. Has anybody seen my dog? Doing the pigeon, Rubber Ducky disco version. I mean, uh, this is going to be great, uh, buddy. What? Buddy, I got bad news for you. What? Uh, this is Saturday Night Fever. I believe you are referring to Sesame Street Fever. Oh, fuck me. Have you been listening to that all week? I have prepared the wrong album. Oh. <laughs> well, fortunately, fortunately, I'm the one doing the research this yes. week. Yes. So okay, uh, I will go through the details oh. on the right album poorly for everybody out there. I was a little confused in the intro, to be honest. <laughs> You're like, what? But what? seriously, folks, uh, this is going to be a great episode. Saturday Night's Fever. This, I'm fucking pumped. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty pumped, too. Uh, honestly, uh, I'm going to be, like, after listening to the album a lot of times in the last week. Yeah. A uh, little less enthused than I was going into this. Yeah, and yeah, you watched the movie, too, right? Uh, yeah. and uh, I watched clips, and I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about uh, a few things this week. We're going to talk, obviously, about the album. We're going to do our our uh, our classic track by track breakdown. Oh, I of, mean, this is what people come to to hear, right? About 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 ten seconds of the song, and then us talking over it, and then taking content from other websites and riffing on yes. it. 
we are going to talk a little bit about the movie uh, itself, a couple of reviews yes. and stories about the movie. And uh, we're going to talk about, uh, we usually focus on a band, but uh, this is the second time we've done a soundtrack. I've done two soundtracks. The first soundtrack, of course, a couple of weeks back, Prince's Purple Rain, but ultimately yeah. that is fully a Prince album. This yes. soundtrack is uh, many different artists, though mm -hmm. the main artists featured in the album are the Bee Gees, so I'm going to mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the Bee Gees as well. Yes. And uh, we're going to talk about the uh, the disco kind of era, and mm -hmm. this album kind of marks the beginning of the end. It is it is the peak, but it is also the beginning of the end. Yes. Uh, it's yeah, Saturday. At the top of the hill. <clears throat> There's only one way to go down the other side. So, uh, Saturday Night Fever, shall we get right into it? Let's get right into it. Let's do it. A uh, couple of quick things from the Wiki about the album. Hmm. Saturday Night Fever is a soundtrack album from the 1977 film, get this, Saturday Night Fever. Oh. It remains the best-selling soundtrack of all time. It has sold over 45 million units. <laughs> units. <laughs> wow. <laughs> In the United States, certified 16 times platinum, so 16 million units sold. The album stayed atop the album charts for 24 straight weeks. Nice. From January to July 1978, which would be uh, leading up to my birth. Yes. It stayed on the Billboard's album charts for 120 weeks until March of 1980. My God. Uh, the album epitomized the disco phenomenon and was an international sensation. It has been added to the National Recording Registry in the Library of Congress for being culturally significant. Uh, yes. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, the Bee Gees are heavily involved uh, on this album. Uh, I believe that they they perform one, two, three, four, five, six tracks on this album and have also yes. included uh, writing for an additional track. So they are uh, all over this. Some of the Bee Gees tracks are actually uh, from albums that were released prior to Saturday Night Fever, and some yep. of the tracks are released for the first time. On Saturday Night Fever. So it's the whole package, buddy. Uh, the Bee Gees' involvement in the film did not begin until post-production. John Travolta, who is the star of this film, uh, asserted the Bee Gees weren't even involved in the movie in the beginning. I was dancing to Stevie Wonder and Boss Skaggs. Nice! I did not know that! Uh, Robin Gibb yes. of the Bee Gees recalled, We were recording our new album in the north of France, and we'd written about and recorded about four or five songs for the new album, uh, when uh, Stigwood, who I believe is the um, uh, the producer of the uh, Saturday Night Fever, let me just double check the credits to get this right. Uh, yes, the producer. So it's it's a production company. Uh, Robert yeah. Stigwood uh, contacted them and said, "We're putting together this little film, low budget, called Tribal Rights of a Saturday Night. Would you have any songs on hand?" And we said, "Look, we can't. We haven't even had time to sit down and write for a film. Uh, we didn't know what it was about." Uh, the brothers wrote the songs virtually in a single weekend at Chateau Orville Studio in France. The nice. first song they recorded was If I Can't Have You, uh, but their version ended up not being used in the film. There was another uh, version, uh, which, is, right. which is in, uh, in the soundtrack, which we will get to a little bit later. Nice. Uh, and Maurice Gibb, again of the Bee Gees, recalled, we played him demo tracks of If I Can't Have You, Night Fever, and more than a woman, and he asked if we could write, uh, if we could write it more disco-y. <laughs> uh, the Bee Gees 
of course, are a pop music group. They were formed in 1958. So long Jesus. ago. Jesus. Uh, it's, it's weird because I, I won't get, get fully into the Wiki entry for them. Um, basically, the story with the Bee Gees that, that you need to know is uh, they are brothers, uh, Barry, Robin, and Maurice Gibb. And they began releasing albums again uh, in the, uh, I guess, in the late 50s, throughout the 60s and the 70s. Uh, right. But they, they, had, they had some success over the course of uh, a lot of albums, by the way. Like, I'm looking at their studio albums and starting in 1965, from there to uh, 1975, we're talking about, uh, about a 12, 12 releases. Jeez. Um, but they changed their sound in around 1975 and certainly did become, as they described, more disco-y. Yes. Uh, more it, dis- it started with a couple of tracks on an album released in 1975 called Main Course, uh, which included Jive Talkin' and uh, Nights on Broadway. Jive Talkin' would make its way onto the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Uh, they followed it up with Children of the World in 1976. Uh, one of the tracks, You Should Be Dancing, also included Classic. on the uh, Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. And uh, they then, um, there was a hiatus in music from 76 to 79. But that, of course, is when the music for this album comes out. And then they follow up this album with another album, which I'll talk about a little bit, called Spirits Having Flown. That was a 1979 release. And again, uh, the band is at their peak in the disco era, and then things turn on them very, very quickly. Very quickly. <laughs> it doesn't last. I have an article here from the New York Post. Uh, okay. It was written on September 23rd, 2017 by Michael Rydell. It is titled, How the Bee Gees Went from Number One to National Pariahs. <laughs> yes. So I'll read a little bit here. In June 1979, the Bee Gees were on top of the world months before their Saturday Night Fever soundtrack featuring songs written and or performed by the Australian trio had won a Grammy for Album of the Year. The year before, it spent 24 weeks at number one and the band was playing 60,000 seats across America. Disco was king and the Bee Gees, brothers Barry, Robin and Maurice Gibb, clad in white suits and flashing gold chains, were its ambassadors. (laughs) At the start of the tour, Maurice got hold of a t-shirt that made everyone backstage laugh. It read, shoot the Bee Gees. (laughs) Six six months later, the tour, as the tour was winding down, nobody was laughing. The disco craze that had ruled the late 70s had come to a screeching halt. And the Bee Gees, Lords of the Airwaves, for two years, found themselves banned from the country's most influential (laughs) radio stations. They hadn't been shot, but they were as good as dead. Nice. Um, wow. So, so the article goes on from there, but but the people turned on uh, the Bee Gees and disco uh, very, very quickly. Well, yeah. I mean, you go look back at some of those things, like the disco demolition thing, nights at baseball games, so, like piling up records, disco records, and burning them on the field. So funny you say that. Yes. Uh, I have one clip for this show, and we may yes. as well get right into it right now. Here it is. Let's do it. 30 years ago, the White Sox and Tigers were due to play a twinite doubleheader at Comiskey Park. A local radio station, along with White Sox owner Bill Veck and his son Mike, devised this promotion. Fans who brought their unwanted disco records would get in the game for 98 cents. The records would be collected, placed in a crate in center field, and blown up between games. 
Now, what could possibly go wrong with this harmless prank? On one level, the promotion certainly worked. Comiskey Park was completely sold out, with thousands reportedly outside still hoping for tickets. Then things began to unravel. Many of the fans waiting crashed the gates. During the first game, some fans started using the records as frisbees, throwing them onto the field or at other times throwing them at other fans. But that was just the beginning. After the first game, the crate of disco records exploded as planned. What happened next was not planned. Thousands of fans immediately rushed the field. Some lit fires. The batting cage was destroyed. The field badly damaged. Multiple fights broke out. Vec got on the PA and pleaded for the fans to return to their seats. They didn't. 39 people were arrested. The umpires declared the field unplayable and called off the second game. <laughs> so? Yes! Uh, if you go to YouTube, you can find clips of this really easily, and they're pretty amazing. Uh, so at the time, this is the old Comiskey Park in Chicago, yes. and they're pulling in like anywhere from like around eight thousand to like sixteen thousand people in a. Yes. In a uh, this is one of those old stadiums, so it holds I think fifty or sixty. It's got it's got a yeah. big uh, you know it's got a huge capacity. So they run this promotion. Uh, it, the station is uh, ninety seven nine, which is why they decide to make it ninety eight cents. Uh, for the, it's the closest yeah. number. Should have been ninety-seven cents because you. Th I don't know what the station was called, but you think it would be like some, something ninety-seven, right? But anyways, yeah, but... ninety-eight cents. Uh, and they have clips of like fans getting pulled up over like fencing and uh, <laughs> into different parts of the stadium so that they can sneak in. And uh, they do the blowing up of the records, and then so many people on the field just rioting Amazing. over disco. <laughs> so excited! Uh, I love it. NPR Music uh, published a an article. This is July 16, 2016. Uh, it's actually um, also, uh, there's an audio clip on this too, which I won't play. July 12, 1979. The night disco died or didn't. Uh, and again, uh, it tells the story, which uh, you just heard. So I will not, uh, I will not read it. So there. Mother, right? Yeah. Check it out for yourself. Awesome. Amazing. You lazy bastards. Uh, so the movie, yes, let's talk a little bit about the movie. Uh, Saturday Night Fever is a 1977 American musical drama film. Uh, it stars John Travolta as Tony Monero, a working class young man who spends his weekends dancing and drinking at a local Brooklyn discotheque. Uh, it also stars Karen Lynn Gorney as Stephanie Mangano, his dance partner and eventual confidant. And Donna Pescow as Annette, Tony's former dance partner and would-be girlfriend. While in the disco, Tony is the champion dancer. His circle of friends and weekend dancing help him cope with the harsh realities of his life. A dead-end job clashes with his unsupportive and squabbling parents, racial tensions in the local community, and his general restlessness. And in the opening clip to this show, uh, <laughs> we hear one of the original conflicts of uh, this movie. <laughs> where Tony is sitting around the dinner table. Uh, his father is recently been laid off of his job. His mother is a very proud because Tony has a brother who is uh, a Catholic priest. Uh, <laughs> spoiler yeah. alert, uh, later on revealed that he is going to be quitting the church. 
Yes. Um, but she is very proud of him. Uh, actually, that clip that you listened to, it continues on where she wants uh, she wants Tony to take her to church so that she can pray that that uh, the son will call her. <laughs> and Tony and Tony's like, you're making God into a telephone operator. Um, but the big conflict, of course, is that his mother gives Tony a second pork chop. Yes. The father is very upset, slaps Tony in the back of the head, and then Tony is very sad because he has worked on his hair all day, and then it gets hit. <laughs> well, pork chops cost fucking money. Yeah, they're not free. No. Uh, I mean, that, that being said, like, I get it. You know, money is tight, but, you know, oh, yeah. it's not like it's steak. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> um, oh, man. I've, listen, I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but it was... It was uh, the clips I watched were tremendous. So let's br- break it down a little bit more. Well, I, let's go right to um, the critical response to the movie. We'll talk. I'll tell you what yeah. the response is. Again, this is by the Wick Eye, and then I'll tell you my own yeah. my own response. Yeah. Uh, Saturday Night Fever received positive reviews and is regarded by many critics as one of the best films of 1977. On Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of 86 percent based on 44 reviews, average rating of 7.5 out of 10. All right. Um, the film critic Gene Siskel, who would later list this as his favorite movie, <clears throat> praised the mm. film. One minute into Saturday Night Fever, you know this picture is onto something, that it knows what it's talking about. He also praised John Travolta's energetic performance. Travolta on the dance floor is like a peacock <laughs> on amphetamines. <laughs> he struts like crazy. Siskel even, bought, uh, Siskel even bought Travolta's famous white suit uh, from the film at a charity auction. What a mark. A total mark. Uh, my review of this, so again, similar to Purple Rain, which we talked about two weeks ago. Yep. yep. Uh, there are some tremendous parts in this movie, all revolving yes. around the dance scenes. They're so good. Uh, they're tremendous, again, for the time, but also like as a historical piece, but also just dancing in general. Uh, yeah. So good. And I also like the, of course, the iconic opening of this movie where Staying Alive is playing, John Travolta yeah. is strutting down the sidewalk, and this scene has been mimicked many times over in, uh, yes. uh, in other uh, movies and television. Uh, the movie itself, I mean, honestly, these guys are heroes in the movie, are kind, yeah. of, are kind of shitty people. They are absolutely. Uh, there is, uh, there are uh, multiple sexual assaults. Yes. Lots of uh, treating women like garbage. Let's be honest. Yeah. Oh yes. And ultimately, one of John Travolta's, uh, I guess I'll call him a friend. Yeah. Basically, a guy who idolizes uh, idolizes Travolta's character, um, yeah. but is largely ignored. Ends up, uh, I guess, committing suicide by falling off a bridge. Jumping off. Yeah. So. Uh, I I don't know, man. Like, the movie's okay. It's all right. Uh, I remember watching it uh, probably in my teens because I was interested and being like, oh, this is kind of shitty. Um, watching it again when I got a little older, I mean, yeah, the dancing, amazing. That fucking floor, the best. Um, but other than that, this the, the movie's pretty flimsy other than that. But, you know, a decent kind of eh, thumbs in the middle kind of thing. It's not bad. All right. Uh, Nadia Komami wrote an article in 2016 for The Guardian, and I want to read uh, some of this a uh, little bit okay. about the movie. <clears throat> okay. It's called Disco Saturday Night Fiction. Okay. Uh, let me see if I can find. Here we go. 
So Saturday Night Fever uh, has since grossed $285 million worldwide. The soundtrack became one of the best-selling film albums of all time. Uh, it talks about the album, of course, at length. Uh, where is the name of this? Uh, all right, here we go. Uh, so Northern, sorry, a decades on, not many remember that the phenomenon was down to one man. Northern Irish rock critic Nick Cohn. And his report of June 7th, 1976 for New York Magazine, and this is called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. So, again, that eventually gets changed to Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, the result of the profile of an ultimate face, Vincent, a young Italian-American, worked in a hardware store during the week and partied at a disco club called 2001 Odyssey on the weekend. Vincent was the very best dancer in Bay Ridge. He owned 14 floral shirts, five suits, eight <laughs> pairs of shoes, three overcoats, and it appeared on American Bandstand. Nice. He and his friends knew nothing of Flower Power, Bob Dylan, or Ken Casey. Uh, they were opulent but poor, proud but shy. So this is his story that he's writing yes. about. And it's like a piece about, you know, Brooklyn and New yeah, York. Exactly. Yeah. The rest of the the rest of cinema history, film rights were sold to producer Robert Stigwood, who had just signed a three picture deal with a young TV actor called John Travolta, a TV actor from Welcome Back, Cotter, most notably. Yes. <clears throat> Screenwriter Norman Wexler transformed Vincent into Tony Monero. So unprecedented was the fanfare that when Stigwood's twenty three year old assistant Kevin McCormick traipsed through Los Angeles looking for a director. One agent, according to Vanity Fair, told them, kid, my directors do movies. They don't do magazine articles. Director John Badham had no such qualms. And in December 1977, his movie uh, took $11 million in the first 11 days. And Travolta became an overnight sensation. Now. Yes. What do you got for me? The punchline to all this. Yes. Come on. Let's 20, hear it. 20 years later came a bombshell. In December 1997, New York Magazine published an article in which Cohn confessed that there never was a Vincent. Yes! Yes, yes! There was no Lisa, Billy, John James, Lorraine, or Donna either. While yes. 2001 Odyssey existed, it wasn't the way the writer described it in 1976. The whole scene of disco-loving Italians, as mythologized in Saturday Night Fever, was exaggerated. Yes. The most bizarre detail was that his disco protagonists were, in fact, based on mods Cohn had known in London. Oh, my God. That is tremendous. <laughs> the writer was painfully aware that everything of everything that Fever had brought him, the fame, the fortune, the rest was a lie. The real story went like this. In 1976, Cohn met a disco dancer named <laughs> Too Sweet. <laughs> yes. T-U Too Sweet. <laughs> Yes! Who introduced him to the clubs of New York, including one in Bay Ridge called 2001 Odyssey. One night, the two trolled through the underbelly of New York, a land of auto shops, transmission specialists, and alignment centers to find the place. A drunken brawl was in progress, and as Cohen opened the cab door, one of the guys reeled over the gutter and threw up over his trouser leg. So he just <laughs> up and returned to the safe comforts of Manhattan, and then wrote this just bullshit story. Even glassed it, big time. <laughs> So that is so great. Yeah. So, oh my god, I never knew that. So that's, that's tremendous. That may be my favorite story about uh about the Oh my god, about the movie the itself. Now it's done. Like that was great. Stop the put forever. We're done. Last yeah, episode. We reached our peak. Um, oh my god. What 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 a find. Well done. Uh so with all that being said about the movie, let's just jump jump right into the album. 
Let's and do it. Let's go track by track. Our track by track breakdown. Yes, here we go. And um, is there a more famous opening track than this? Know. Here we I don't go. Think so. So, of course, we got Stand Alive. Yes. Uh, a disco song written and performed by Bee Gees. The song was yeah. released on December 13th, 1977, as the second single from Saturday Night Fever. Uh, this song in 2004 was placed at number 189 on the list of Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, on its release, Staying Alive climbed the charts to hit the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100 the week of February 4th, 1978, remind, remaining there for four weeks. In the process, it became the band's most recognizable tune, in part because of its place at the beginning of Saturday Night Fever. So we got the strutting. Oh, my God. I mean, say what you want about disco, but this is a fucking banger. Uh, of course, uh, no cutting, though. Just strutting. Oh, so much strutting. No, no cutting. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Uh, I I am going over to song meetings. Unlike you, uh, I have not perused song meetings in uh, in advance. In advance, that's okay. Makes uh, it more exciting. So, uh, commenter Gary seven six zero nine eight five says, "Come on." The lyrics: New York Times effect on man literally means the day by day stresses that take its toll on one living in New York City during the 70s. Okay. As outsiders, you can try to understand, but you will not fully comprehend it until you have spent the day in the shoes of a New Yorker. All right, Gary. Uh, well done. Commenter R.I.P. Maurice Gibb ah. says, I love the Bee Gees. <laughs> Is that it? That's it. <laughs> Oh my god, you know, with a name R.I.P. Maurice Skip, you could just have the comment could just be blank, and we'd know. Exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we know you love the Bee Gees. Uh, I now, like totals. Uh, okay. Now, my other favorite fact, and this is a personal tale. Ah, yes. Uh, so, I was born in 1978. Yes, you were. I graduated from high school in 1996. I did not fail any grades or skip any grades, so... <laughs> Yes. So I, graduated I love this in story 19... too because it fucking bothers me. But anyway, go on. Uh, so my graduating, uh, you know, they, they put this little committee together to figure out all the shit involved in grad, yeah. right? It's going to be yeah. at this location and this is the theme and here's what we're going to do over the course of the night and blah, 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 blah. And, uh, and just uh, for everyone knows, I, I was in attendance at this, at this, uh, at this uh, grad, uh, you know, night. So they decided that uh, we were going to have a uh, song that all us graduates would then walk into the hall like a, like we were a fucking wrestling stable. Like a bunch of fucking thugs. Uh, coming out. And uh, here is the song that was chosen for our group. <sighs> With the sirens. Well, wait for the gunshot. Get real with the fever on the dance floor. Oh, it doesn't happen. Okay. <sighs> so this is Entrance, uh, and this is Staying Alive. 
Yes. Uh, so it's just, you know, it's, it's samples staying alive, and of course, he just raps over it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the logic that was used was that Staying Alive came out the year we were born. Yes. And Staying Alive, the entrance version, came out the year that we graduated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that would have worked for your grad. But it wouldn't have because Entrance didn't Entrance come out in ninety five in ninety six? I think it came out in ninety five. Maybe it did. You know what? You're right. I think it came out in ninety five and Staying Alive, the original, came out in nineteen seventy seven. Yes, the year that I was born. Yeah. Ridiculous. So, I, I remember I remember I I remember this happening. I remember the song. And I remember you fucking dorks all walking out in your <laughs> stupid little outfits, in your dresses and your tuxedos, fucking shucking and jiving. Not all of you, but some of you, including MB Cousin. Oh, yeah, right? All fucking chucking and jiving like you guys had thought of the greatest thing. And I was sitting there. I was so furious, as I knew. <laughs> I'm all, that's a, that's, that's a lie. <laughs> Your grad is a sham. You didn't now, that graduate. Being, that being said, the arseholes in charge of my grad night had us walk into the hall to fucking friends theme. So. Oh, no. It, 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 even worse. Oh, that's hideous. We're all friends now. And I'm sitting there going, fuck you. Well, I mean, you guys were friends for, what, a month? After well, we that? became very good friends for that month, you know, when you're all like, we're embarking on our lives. Oh, God. We're such good friends. We didn't give a shitty about each other for fucking 15 years, but now we're all friends. <laughs> so, there... <laughs> so there you go, everybody. Anyway. Um, some deep-seated high school tension coming out on Albums Are Dead. Yes, indeed. Well done. Staying alive. Classic track. All right. Let's go to uh, track number two. Yes. Uh. <sighs> Silky smooth. Oh, listen to this. There are silk sheets. <laughs> silk fucking bitch. All right. So how deep is your love? Uh, I like this, uh, the Wiki entry. The title is, How Deep Is Your Love? Open parenthesis, BG song, close parenthesis. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, it topped the Billboard Hot 100 on 24th December, 1977. Nice. So it was, uh, it was a, a Christmas. A little, a little Christmas sexiness. Christmas single for you. <clears throat> it, yes. ended, it ended the 10-week reign of Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Life. Ah, and okay. stayed uh, and stayed in the top ten for a then record seventeen weeks. Nice. Also six weeks atop the U.S. Adult Contemporary chart. It is listed as number twenty-two on the fiftieth fifty fifth anniversary edition of Billboard's all time top one hundred. Nice. Uh, over at songfacts.com. Okay. The Bee Gees wrote this song for the American singer Yvonne Elman. Robert Stingwood, who produced the movie Saturday Night Fever, insisted the Bee Gees perform it themselves for the soundtrack. Elliman did end up singing another track, which we will get to uh, in a little bit, another Bee Gees track. Okay. Uh, that's uh, There's other stuff, but, you know, that's all we need to say. Yeah, that's all we need to know. There we go. It's a nice track. So we uh, slowed it down there, and then the Bee Gees nice. are going to they're gonna pick it up again. Right of here. course. Yes. Who the fucking hustle right now? 
<laughs> it's all not the hustle. <laughs> no, I know, but I'm just still doing it. Mm. Do the hustle, Denny. All right. This is my favorite song on the uh, album. It's great. Uh, Night Fever. Uh, they do not specify that it is a BG song in this Wiki entry. No, I mean, it goes without saying. <laughs> Uh, this song bounded up the Billboard charts while BG's, uh, the BG's two previous hits from Saturday Night Fever uh, were still in the top 10. I love how it bounded up the charts. <laughs> so like a dog running upstairs. <laughs> uh, it went to, uh, or, let's see, this is how it moved. Uh, it was released, by the way, on the 7th of February, 1978. It went 32, 17, 8, 5, 2, and 1. It remained at number one for eight nice. weeks and ultimately spent 13 weeks in the top 10. Uh, for the first five weeks that Night Fever was number one, Staying Alive was number two. No. Uh, also, awesome. for one week in March, Bee Gees related songs held five of the top positions in the Hop 100 chart, and more impressively, four of the top five position with Night Fever at the top of the list. The B-side of Night Fever was a live version of Down the Road, taken from the Bee Gees' 1977 album, Here at Last, dot, 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 Bee Gees, dot, 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 live. <laughs> that's great though people all getting out there and buying others all, all buying up whatever they can to listen to it i need all the beaches <laughs> i gotta get more beaches. uh songmeetings.com okay come on not many comments here but uh okay. i got a couple well and you know and, and what kind of world do we live in where avril lavigne gets 956 <laughs> comments and night fever only has a handful uh song meanings fan yes said it's about people in love, enjoying life and dancing, generally having a good time. Oh. Let's do okay. this, Johnny said. I love dancing to this. Mm -hmm. Acid Sex says, <laughs> wow, no comments? Obviously, it's about going out on the weekend nights to go dancing and enjoy the big city. Mm. And my favorite comment, Curd <laughs> uh, TBO says, it's about the bird flu. <laughs> There's always a fucking troll, right? <laughs> what do you? I think he's serious. Come on. <laughs> Night uh, Fever. I mean, this is fucking great. Uh, by the way, I should have also mentioned this album is uh, a double LP. So if you yes. buy the ver vinyl version, you are getting two records, which to me makes the sales numbers even more incredible. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> because it is a double LP. Uh, so we are still on That's side a little, a. More, a little bit more cheese to buy this thing. Exactly. Uh, let's go to track number four. All right. Are we flipping over onto side B of uh, this one? Uh, we are not yet. Not yet. Okay. Ah. Yes. Oh, actually, sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm on the right one. Here we go. Uh, so this is more than a woman. Nice. Uh... It became a regular feature in the group's live sets from 1997 until Maurice Gibbs' death in 2003 and was often yep. coupled with Night Fever. The Bee Gees started okay. to record it from February to March 1977 <laughs> uh, at Le Chateau Héroville in France. Mm -hmm. uh, the soundtrack includes two versions of this song, yes. which is kind of funny. Uh, so we have this version. Which version do you like better? Well, let's go to the other one. I know which one I like better. No, this, this is the same. This is the same, same one. one. 
<laughs> well, my uh, Spotify. I uh, know it's actually my uh, my iTunes. The where's Tavares? <laughs> well, this is the is this is the Tavares one, is it not? I don't know. I believe it is. Be patient. Hold on here. I'm, hey, I'm, I'm all confused. Yeah, I'm going to Spotify now. I'm all discombobulated. I know. I, I I didn't prepare for this. Oh, my God. Well, only on albums are dead are you going to get this kind of a uh, fuck up. And, uh, and only here on we albums go. are dead can we, can, we, can we deal with it with such uh, panache. This is the Bee Gees version. You can tell. Here we go. <laughs> oh, this is a better. This is the better version. How could we not have known? <laughs> Yeah. Originally. I couldn't. I couldn't really. I couldn't really place it, but this is definitely the better version. Oh, it absolutely is. But you're yes, they do have two versions of this. For some reason, they're like, let's just give you both. Yeah. So of course, this is the BZ's version. Is this is this track four? This is track four. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> let's look at song meetings again. Yes. There is not much. Uh, Covince. Sorry, Convince. Convince says, okay. "What a play on words." I hate the Bee Gees, but this song is great. I love the huh. lyrics. Sounds like he's known this woman since she was a girl, and now that he's really taken a look at her, he realizes he's in love with her. Mm. Okay, so there you go. Mm. I enjoy the. Uh, I enjoy the uh, scene in the in the British version of The Office with the with where they dance to "More Than a Woman." Classic. Oh yes. That is right. <laughs> Where it's what and David then, Brent's and then Ricky boss. Your face does the ridiculous fucking techno dance. It's terrible. Uh, let's see. I've got these a little bit out of order, but here we go. Nice. So this is the closing track on side A. Yes. If I Can't Have You uh, is written again by the Bee Gees. Uh-huh. It is performed by Yvonne Elliman. Yes. Uh, the Bee Gees version appeared a month later as the B-side of Staying Alive. So they also uh, recorded this. Uh, yes. It ended up on some of their greatest uh, hits. This song uh, started again in the recording sessions that were, that were happening prior to uh, this album coming out. So back yeah. in France. Uh... Although Yvonne Elliman had cut her 1976 album Love Me with producer Freddie Perrin, who was a major force in the disco movement, uh, Love Me had showcased Elliman not as a disco artist, but rather a pop ballad singer. Okay. Uh, notably, on the title cut, a Barry Gibb composition, which had provided Elliman with an, uh, with an international hit. It was originally intended that Elliman's contribution to Saturday Night Fever would be another ballad, uh, How Deep Is Your Love? Meanwhile, the Bee Gees produced their own version of If I Can't Have You for the film. However, RSO Records chairman and Bee Gees manager Robert Stigwood, who was the executive producer for the album, dictated that the Bee Gees themselves record How Deep Is Your Love and Elman give uh, a shot to the disco style If I Can't Have You. So there you go. Uh, this song, uh, in her version, uh, sounds like a theme song to a fucking TV show. <laughs> so it could be the love boat. Uh, I do have to say also, I love the RSO uh, Records singles. Yeah. Uh, I used to remember these because my parents had a lot of these songs on 45. 
And I love the beige color and what I believe is a bull with a collar yes. that says RSO on it on the, right. on these records. Classic. Uh, so that is my favorite. That's my favorite thing about this. There you go. That's your favorite thing ever. And that's it. <laughs> In the history of the world. All right. So we're done side A of, of yes. and uh, it's all BG stuff. And we're doing pretty good. Not bad. I think we're doing pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. So we flipped the record over. Uh-huh. And, and this is where things start getting a little dicey. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to Waterslide Warzone. <laughs> so, oh my God. <laughs> so, what what ultimately happens with a lot of um? musical movements is yes. you, you start off with a lot of more original sounding tracks. Yes, you and, do. And then you get into the gimmicky stuff. Uh-huh. So in this case, we have a fifth of Beethoven. It's a Just disco a instrumental version recorded by Walter Murphy. Yes. <laughs> and the Big Apple Band. This is adapted from the first movement of Ludwig van Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Yes. Uh, the record... <laughs> It's fucking terrible. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say. It's bad. Uh, we little... did, we, as I referenced, we used the you guys used this. I wasn't there as the theme song of a a a pretend pay per view that we did in our backyard wrestling. That is correct. <laughs> following because its... you had the CD in your car. Following its release, a fifth of Beethoven was a hit, starting out at number eighty on the Billboard Hot 100 and eventually reaching number one. You've got to be fucking kidding me. One week. You know, we did a uh, episode on our sister podcast, Mezzanine Sleepover. Yes. Where we did the crappiest number one singles, but we started in 1980 and went forward. Yes, we did. I would argue if we'd gone back a few more years, this would have been there. Absolutely, it would have. This single sold two million copies. My God. Wow. Uh, And one more note. This is not the last time that we are going to mess around with uh, classical music in disco format on this album. Nope. (laughs) Uh, So track seven is again, the Tavares version of more than a woman. So I will skip that. Um, Of course, can't say Tavares enough being from Toronto. (laughs) Of course. That's right. You're, you're, you're you're loving it. Uh, That's all right. Fucking six goals already. Uh, Here is the uh, next track. Track number eight. This track is called, I I don't actually have a lot on this. This track is called Manhattan Skyline. Yes. It is performed by David Shire, and it is a disco-y instrumental track. Yeah, pretty much a throwaway kind of, it was in the movie, maybe. Yeah. That's about it. So here's a little bit. I mean, it's fine if you're in an elevator. Or browsing in like in like the sixth floor of Eaton's <laughs> in 1980. You are correct. <laughs> uh, most of this side is is this kind of stuff. Here is the uh, closing track uh, coming up uh, from this uh, this side of the, of the album. First of the first uh, disc here. So we have to get a little bit of that like uh, Latin flavor. 
course you do. And again, this comes up a few times on this album as well. Yep. Fucking disco, man. She's deluxe. Uh, again, I don't have much to say on this one. It's another instrumental. This is called Calypso Breakdown. Calypso. Uh, this is performed by Ralph McDonald. Uh, it was produced. It was written by a guy named William Eaton, and it is seven minutes and fifty-one seconds. Oh my god! And the names of some of these guys: Walter Murphy and Ralph McDonald. I'm just gonna scrub. Sounds made up. Here we go. <laughs> I like the driving beat. Guitar noodling. It's fine. I don't know if I need to listen to it for eight minutes. It sounds more like the background in a lounge. Not really like on the disco floor, I gotta say. Uh, so we uh, we pull out the second record. Yes, and indeed. we start with this. Michael. sinister this is night on disco mountain i love it uh dave shire making his uh second appearance on this album and not and not his last uh all you really need to know about this song is when you click on the night on disco mountain link on the wikipedia you go straight to an entry for night on bald mountain no well great so of course again little infinite loop yeah nowhere so another uh another song uh, and you know, an older classic song that has been rejigged in a disco yep. format. Yes, and uh, quite unremarkable. I don't really get though. Like again, like it's like you're like I, I gotta get a, so I gotta spit some hot disco fire. So let's get some old fucking terrible song and just disco fire it. On the Night on Bald Mountain Wikipedia entry under other arrangements, David Shire arranged an orchestral disco adaptation for the 1977 motion picture Saturday Night Fever. The arrangement, titled Night on Disco Mountain, appears on track 10 of the soundtrack album, except for changes in phrasing and rhythm, plus the addition of a disco drum beat and scratch guitar. It is fairly true to the original symphonic arrangement. Just fucking lazy. All right. Business is about to pick up. It sure is. <laughs> Open Destiny. Coming down the aisle <laughs> from San Francisco, California. Shazam, let's go to Come on. Oh, that pause. Come on. Yes. Yes. All right. Woo! <laughs> Love it. So this is Open Sesame, Part One. Yeah. On the uh, on the album, it is just called Open Sesame. Yes. Uh, but it is actually Open Sesame Part One. Um, I'm going to play Part Two in a moment. Uh, I've gone over to Song Facts. There is no Open Sesame Part One uh, comments on the entry. Uh-huh. Um, I am opening Sesame Part 2, and again, no comments. So unfortunately, there's not going to be any comments other than what it, we can add to this. It is about the song, let me tell you. This song is about a wrestling genie. 
who he his bottle his bottle washed up on the shores of San Francisco. Yes, and it was rubbed, and out came a genie who gave flower bombs, and eventually would go on to be a Grand Slam champion in the Whoop Ass Wrestling Federation. There you go, right on. Uh, this yes. is performed by Cool and the Gang. Yes. Uh, this. Uh, this song, so pers- the personal story behind this is we had a Backyard Wrestling Federation. Yes. Uh, each of us performed multiple wrestler uh, wrestling characters. Yes. But we each had a main character. I initially came in and was going to be a character called Side Highlander from another Backyard Federation that we had. Yes. But upon hearing this song and references to the Genie and Shazam, I promptly uh-huh. changed my name to Shazam the Cisco Genie. Because you, you well you fish you you originally wanted to be the Cisco kid yes and then you changed it because you heard Shazam so you incorporated Cisco into there tremendous uh, so this is one version of the song I'm gonna play uh, another one this is Open yes. Sesame Part Two prove with the genie. yes so. Just a you know a different remix of the song. You this, used both songs. This would primarily be primarily used part two. This would be the one that I heard first. Yes. And then when I heard the original version, I was uh, thrilled. Yes. Uh, recently, I've also heard this. Open, 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 sesame. Open, open, sesame. No. Open, open, sesame. What is this? Magic. Oh my God. Just wait. <laughs> so you're listening to the this how this is constructed? Yes. Can you can you take a guess at right away at what decade this would be remixed in? Uh in the uh in the eighties, right? Yes. Yeah. So in 1988, like remix. in 1988, Cool and the Gang released a greatest hits album with remixed versions of some of their greatest hits. My God, are you serious, dude? <laughs> this would have been a great third theme. I know, right? Like when he turns face and he's like, he's all like fucking fucking mega Shazam. You can tell that it's 80s with the bass. Oh, uh, when he won that world title, he should have had this. Oh, the next match. Yes, this is the best. <laughs> so oh anyways. my god! So go look for like, that. Now we can end the show. Like we're done. <laughs> so, right? Like that's that's the peak. I know, and yet there are still six more tracks to go. You lucky oh listeners. Anyway, uh, uh, Open Sesame, for, uh, just in any incarnation, is amazing. Best song on the on the on the on the on the disc. Yeah, so we so things have started picking up again, and they keep going with this. Good. All right, so we got Jive talking. My first comment: uh, <laughs> These guys wrote wrote a song that was famous called Jive Talking. 
I know, right? Like these guys? Fucking three of the whitest dudes you'll ever meet. Mm-hmm. From the Wickeye. The song was originally called Drive Talkin'. Okay. The song's rhythm was modeled after the sound their car made, crossing yeah. the Julia Tuttle Causeway each day. Uh, this is in Miami. Yes. Recording for Drive Talkin' took place on January 30th and February 2nd, 1975. The scratchy guitar intro was done by Barry and the funky bass line by Maurice. Nice. Uh, this song... And Robin, as usual, did nothing. <laughs> Upon its release to radio stations, the single was delivered in a plain white cover with no immediate indication of what the song's name was or who sang it. The DJs would only find out what the song was and who played it when it was placed on the turntable. RSO did provide the song with a label on the record itself. It was a uh, the second time in the band's career that the, strateg the strategy had been employed to get airplay of their music. Nice. Uh, their first time was with the U.S. single New York Mining Disaster 1941. <laughs> tremendous. That fucking little, uh, little synth line, though, is just tremendous, too. Great. Hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one in Canada, and I have to read one more fact. After hearing the song Jive Talkin', Lindsey Buckingham of Fleetwood Mac and co-producer yes. Richard Daschet uh, built up the song Secondhand News, released on the band's rumors in 1977, with four audio tracks of electric guitar and the use of chair percussion uh, to invoke Celtic rock. I just wanted to read that because it references Lindsey Buckingham. Lindsey Buckingham, all right. Uh, we get this next track on the album. Oops, got to go into the uh, playlist again. My apologies. Uh, here is the next track. I believe right. Kid Tetris would approve. Of course he would. Woo! Yes. We'll, we'll get to the good place. Here we go. Here it is. <laughs> you should be dancing. Uh, from the album Children of the World, released in 1976. It hit number one for one week on the American Billboard Hot 100. Number one for seven weeks on the U.S. Hot Dance Club play chart. And in September of the same year, reached number five on the U.K. singles chart. It also peaked at number four on the Billboard Soul chart. Oh, wow. Well, this, this was the song that launched the Bee Gees into disco. And it was the only track from the group to top the dance chart. And, of course, was then later moved to the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. Uh, probably not my favorite song on the album, but the most entertaining. Pretty awesome. Um, again, also featured in that episode of The Office that I like. And also... Uh, one of the reasons that uh, myself and Kid Tetris love this, the night that you drove up to Bar Italia in your car, blasting this song and yelling at us to, hey kids, come and jump in the disco sexo-mobile. <laughs> so, well done. Uh, there are three comments on songmeanings.com. <coughs> User Jass says, ye. Yee. Okay. Fabulously Terrible says, clearly about getting off your ass and dancing. I personally think that Barry Gibb sounds funny. Okay. And CJ17 says, clear the dance floor. I'm taking over. Oh, you know, all you had to do was follow the train, CJ. 
next track. All right. Nice. Uh, so Casey and the Sunshine Band, a uh, big-time disco band, yes, uh, makes, uh, makes an appearance on this soundtrack with a track called Boogie Shoes. It was released in 1975 on their self-titled album. Yes. It became a hit after it appeared on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, and it peaked at number 35 on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1978. Boogie Shoes! Uh, I will just, I guess I will just stick to the Wickeye. Structurally, it uses a 16-bar blues chord progression, as with mm. several of Casey's disco songs. Some of the lyrics are playfully suggestive. I want to do it till the sun comes up. I want to do it till I can't get enough. Mm. Songs about banging. Becoming a bit of a theme here. Uh, yes. Albums are dead. The last three weeks. The last couple of weeks. So many songs about humping. Yes. Let's let's go to. Uh, we're gonna flip the record over. We've only got three tracks left, and I'm gonna go to through two of them pretty quickly. Okay, sounds good. David Shire makes his third appearance. Oh, God. With Salsation. Another <laughs> one of these. Like, these are disco in name only. I feel like it's, like, this is, like, disco for, like, you know, like, it's, like, our grandparents would have liked it. Like, our parents liked the disco, but their parents would have been okay with some of this. If I'm not mistaken, one of the major plot points in the movie is that, um, so John Travolta's in this uh, dance contest. Yes. And he's been practicing with uh, this woman, and they uh, they go into the contest, and there is another couple in the contest who are, um, they're from Latin America. Yeah. And they dance to either this or, or one of the, one of those songs on this, on this yeah. album. Uh-huh. And they end up, uh, they end up not winning the contest. John Travolta's team wins the contest and he is very upset and he believes that their win is tainted, that they were not the best dancers and that it was racially motivated. Yeah, I I'd say it was probably song choice motivated cuz these songs are shit. <laughs> All right, let's go to track <laughs> 16. All right. <laughs> I mean, listen, at least this is soul. Yeah. This song is called K-G. Nice. J E E. Uh it was a single by uh, soul and funk band called the Nightlighters. Yep. Charted in 1971 at number 17 on the Billboard R&B chart and number 39 on the Hot 100. Yep. And it was used on the uh, on the soundtrack. Not much else to say. Yeah, I mean that's soul and name only. That's that's disco style. We're gonna end things with a bang though. Here yes, we go. We are. I'm just killing time while I enter this song into song facts and song meanings. Full disclosure. Uh, So this is Disco Inferno. It is by a band called The Tramps. Here we go. Yes. Put a little insanity on your potato. Well. Shake it, man. uh, I did actually pull up the Wickeye for Taylor Negron. 
Yes! Uh, in one of our favorite movies, which we reviewed uh, way back when on our sister podcast, The Mezzanine yes. Sleepover, called The Stone Age, there is a scene where the banger dudes, who are the stars of the movie, go into a convenience store, and Disco Inferno is playing... Liquor store. Liquor store, that is right. Uh, Taylor Negron is the uh, working the cash register, and he is dancing and jiving to Disco Inferno. Uh, also... Disco Inferno, your favorite wrestler. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, so this is a 1976 uh, song. Uh, the album was also called Disco Inferno. With two other cuts by the group, it reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Dance Club songs chart in early 1977. But it had limited mainstream success until 1978 when, get this, it was included yeah. on the soundtrack. Yes. The 1977 film, Saturday Night Fever. I can't believe it. Uh, let's head over to song facts. Okay. The raging fire in this song is a metaphor for the musical heat on the dance floor, but the refrain, burn baby burn, was also a phrase chanted at the Watts riots in 1965 as fires raged throughout the Los Angeles neighborhood. Double entendre there. Besides Saturday Night Fever, this song has also been featured in Ghostbusters, mm -hmm. Backfire, Donnie Brasco, and Dogtown and Z-Boys, or in Canada, Z-Boys, as we would call them. Yes. Uh, conspicuous on that listing, no Stone Age. <laughs> Terrible. We should correct this. Yes, we should. Uh, there are some uh, comments here on... Gotta make a move. <laughs> song... Do the hustle. Songmeetings.com. <laughs> yes, Funkless says, this song is so funny, so danceable, I always remember the donkey off Shrek singing this one. Oh my god. That's your fucking pop culture reference point. Fucking Shrek. God damn it. Uh, the That's the problem with the culture today. The Graduate Old says, the Graduate says, it's simple. It's about disco. <laughs> Thanks! I love it! Uh... User slave number two disco says disco at its finest. I defy you to not try to dance to this. Oh, so funky, except he writes. Oh, so fucky disco nice. disco shoon impossible. Ah, well, no, it's not, but still good. Good comment. Uh, this song, by the way, tracks in at 10 minutes and 51 seconds. It's just excessive. Like think about like great, like kind of, um, you know songs that that clock in at you know long long uh, run times like let's say flashlight by parliament and it's like just a good song lots of different parts but this fucking thing so repetitive <laughs> that is true this should be a tight three minutes uh a couple of uh quick other notes because uh, i know we are running up against time and we've got a couple of other our other classic things that we do that you're all waiting yes. for i'm sure no, one 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 thing we will not be touching on today it's going to be interesting uh, so, uh, there is, I, I pulled other articles about, um, you know, disco dying. Um, yes. but of course we've already talked a little bit about that. So let's do a couple of quick reviews. Yes. Uh, let's start off with Amazon, uh, and okay, Amazon. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Amazon one star reviews. Okay. Uh, this one is by Pavarotti fan. Jeez, I wonder why he doesn't like it. <laughs> Save your money. You're better, better off purchasing the Bee Gees' greatest hit CD. There are too many songs on this CD that the Bee Gees didn't sing. 
another customer who did not post their name in 1999 said, one star, the worst. <laughs> okay. This is the album that made listening to the radio such a miserable experience in the late 1970s. Thank God we had real music like The Clash, The Ramones, Talking Heads, etc. during the same time. Uh-oh. At least there is something to show for that era. This stuff is horrid. Avoid, for God's sakes, avoid. Someone is too cool for school. <laughs> Listen to punk music. It was way yeah, better. Wait, let's do some fucking mod music. <laughs> uh, you, you just, oh, fuck. You, I, I, you, you, I can picture in my mind exactly what that person looks like. Uh, pitchfork. Ah. In two, my ears have perked up like a dog. In 2007, Rhino released a 30th anniversary edition okay. of the soundtrack. And Pitchfork gave it a rating of 8.7. Pitchfork, bringing the good, you know, Pitchfork on board with uh, pretty much everything that we've reviewed on this show. A new source that I want to use whenever we can. Okay. I am over at commonsensemedia.org. Yes, you mentioned this. I'm so excited. Common Sense Media, here's a couple of things that they say. First of all, they say this album is approved for listeners age 10 plus. Yeah, so Common Sense Media is a resource for parents. Um, we specifically use it in looking at movies to see kind of like what are some things, some red flags. I tend to um, stay away from the user reviews because they are terrible. So I'm excited to hear what they have to say about this. Uh, soundtrack of Disco Classics still staying alive. Yes. Uh, it gets two, I guess, dots out of five for positive messages. Two yes. for positive role models. One dot for violence. One dot okay. for sex. Are they reviewing the movie? No, this. Uh, they also have the movie, but this is specifically the soundtrack. What? They say it makes what, no sense. They say what parents need to know. Parents okay. need to know that while the movie Saturday Night Fever features questionable characters in dicey situations, <laughs> yes. Saturday Night Fever, the soundtrack, which was inescapable in the late 1970s heyday and still enjoys huge popularity everywhere, from dance school recitals to Glee. Dance school recital, yeah. I guess recitals. I'm not, not school dances. Yeah, dance school recitals. Yeah, so if you're dancing and you're doing recital, they may bust out some Disco Inferno as a rip. Is much lighter fare and lots more fun. It's a musical snapshot of the disco era comprising some of its greatest classics, and then it goes through some of the songs. Uh-huh. It's free of the highly sexualized content found in many disco songs. Uh-huh. Under Is It Any Good, mm-hmm. there are good reasons Saturday Night Fever was so popular in its time and continues to resurface. The Bee Gees are in top form as songwriters and performers, and just about every track is irresistibly danceable. I would dis- disagree. So would I. Talk to your kids if you're listening to this. A couple of questions that you should ask. Come on. Families can talk about classical music making the move to other styles, as oh. in A Fifth of Beethoven and Night on Disco Mountain. Would the composers approve? Do you approve? I will tell you no and no. No, no, yes. How do you think like, this... Okay, like, this is a fucking stretch. I mean, okay, you know what? If I, if my, you know, if my kid is listening to fucking Bat Dance, I may have, you know, I may have to explain a couple things, but this album? Come on. Uh, number two, how do you think the disco music on this album compares with the dance music of today? Oh, my God. Number three, why do you think the music in movie soundtracks is often so different from what actually happens in the movie? What? 
Like this song. Who's writing this? These songs aren't about the movie. They're about shit that they dance to in the fucking movie. Yeah, it doesn't. It's just they're they're a little confused here. So, anyways, a, a little bit of a taste. Uh, Common Sense Media, of course, uh, will probably be more interesting with more controversial albums. <laughs> This would have been fun two weeks ago, <clears throat> three weeks ago with Straight Outta Compton. Yes, and with uh, Prince. Yes, and with Purple Rain, absolutely. <clears throat> so as I mentioned in the last thing to note here, uh, the Bee Gees went on in 1979 to release uh, another LP called Spirits Having Flown. They then embarked on a tour. They did. Okay, so we are talking tour. Good. Uh, yeah, so uh, after the release of Saturday Night Fever, the Bee Gees were unable to tour due to their commitment to the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band movie. Oh, my God. One of the worst movies ever made. Uh, prior to the kickoff of the tour, their popularity grew because of the, uh, of the <laughs> album, of course. They won, yep. you know, they won a bunch of stuff. Yes. Um, considering the group's popularity was at an all-time high, stringent security precautions were taken. Though the Bee Gees themselves uh, set up base in only five cities, they would fly to the next venue and return to their home base immediately following the show. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Uh, they leased a custom 55-seat Boeing 720 jet at a cost of over $1 million, which was uh, with a specifically designed logo on the exterior of the plane. Blowing through that cash! The Bee Gees were accompanied on the tour by a film crew capturing highlights of the shows for use in an NBC TV special, which aired in November, hosted by David Frost. Oh, Okay. Uh, beginning on what was their most ambitious tour the Bee Gees embarked on, there was a lot of preparation for the tour. Uh, they had special effects, blah, 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 blah. Tour consisted of a 41-date schedule starting in Fort Worth, Texas, and ending in their hometown of Miami, Florida. Uh, and then they wore their little disco uh, costumes for this. <laughs> uh, the scheduled concert in Kansas City had to be canceled due to severe damage on the roof of Kemper Arena during a violent storm on June 4th. Ooh. And I would like to say Kemper that is the, the worst thing that happened in that arena, but it is not. No, it is not. Uh, the set list is full of Saturday Night Fever songs and Bee Gees classic hits. Uh, looking through the uh, tour listings, there are uh, there is a stop in Toronto at Maple Leaf Gardens on August 31st, 1979. Uh, and then they moved to two shows at the Montreal Forum in uh, Montreal, those uh, besides, and you know, yeah, you got to think that Guy Lafleur, who made a disco album of his own, had to have been there. <laughs> he must have been there in his, and uh, well, eventually, I guess his son wouldn't have been there. <laughs> <laughs> Not at that time. Oh God! <laughs> uh, have you heard Guy's? Have you heard Guy's disco album? I have not. It is disco music with Guy talking about how to play hockey. <laughs> That's great. And then you make the pass. <laughs> and if it was made, if it was made in the 1990s, he'd be like, "Then you take your son to a hotel so he can fuck." Fuck. <laughs> uh, there's also a, a stop in Vancouver. Uh, this uh, Wiki entry does not have any international tour dates. This is strictly the North American tour. All right. And uh, that is all that I have on that. And basically, all I have to say about Saturday Night Fever. I got into this album in the late. 1990s when I got into 80s music and then subsequently into disco music and bought it. Uh, I enjoyed some of the tracks and other ones I skipped repeatedly and that was my fandom of the album personally. Um, love this album uh, with, that, with the cover art and the, the floor and fucking Grover standing there and on the back with oh shit <laughs> 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 um, yeah my parents had this album of course they did 
I I didn't pay much attention to it. Uh, you know, I paid attention to Sesame Street Fever um, when I was young. As I got a bit older, kind of rediscovered Staying Alive in the early '90s as a fun track, and uh, watched the movie. And uh, you know, listen, it's 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 a, it's a it's a fun listen for the most part. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I I could see you know a 40th uh, anniversary edition that you could have done stripping out of the garbage. That would have been tremendous. <laughs> um, I give it a, uh, a thumbs in the middle as a whole. Um, I give it a thumbs up for um, a good half of the tracks. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, this was, uh, you know, a decent album, but man, what a podcast. That was great. Good job. Uh, and I would say, go listen to the soundtrack. You don't really need to bother with the movie. Find the dance scenes on YouTube. They're, they're great. Uh, I will end <laughs> this version of How Deep Is Your Love, which I heard at a train station in New Jersey <laughs> nice. while waiting for a train. Uh, we'll finish the show. Uh, so there you go. Uh, we will have to figure out some stuff for next week. Yeah, not sure. Uh, head over to uh, all of our social media sites, and we will eventually give you a hint as to we what we will be we got to hurry up and decide, because uh, next week is coming soon. It is very soon. So, yes, a week for you. It's your it's your, uh, your run-through. I know, I know. i gotta, I got to get down to business, so... Um, we'll, I'll come up with something. I'll come up with something good. Um, but uh, until then, yeah, uh, uh, we are albums are dead. I am at megamix.com, and I am the Slip Man with five eyes or slip. And we will see you all in a week. Good night, folks. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>